This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Mark Golston. He has a fascinating background, including uh, being a consultant for the O.J. Simpson trial uh, on, for the prosecution. He's been a guest on The Oprah Show. He has appeared often as a human psychology and behavioral expert on The Today Show, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Forbes, CNN, and all the major news networks. We discuss uh, in this interview about how during a crisis like COVID, we keep going on uh, adrenaline, but when we come down off it, it can be devastating and, and, uh, and people can get listless. And this is kind of what we're experiencing right now. He talks about burnout and, and actually pushes us to be more, which pushes us to be more isolated, which actually fuels the fire of burnout. Uh, the huge mental toll that this p- pandemic has caused is just now starting to come to light. So he's a very unique uh, approach to all this, being a psychiatrist and his vast experience over the years and, and just uh, had some incredible mentors and just a very interesting and, uh, and fascinating discussion with someone who uh, has a lot of experience in this area. So let's get, uh, let's get right into the interview and, uh, and uh, talk to Mark. Mark, welcome to the program. It's really great to have you this afternoon. Well, it's great to be with you, Steve. So now you have a real unique perspective as you're an MD, you're a psychiatrist, uh, you've been a jury consultant, uh, and now you're a business coach. So how did you find your way into coaching when you had all those previous experiences in life? Well, I started out as a psychiatrist and I started out... um, as a suicide specialist. And in many years of doing it, none of my patients died by suicide. And then what happened is I got to know some people at the FBI and I started doing FBI and police hostage negotiation training because some of the things that I had learned to step in the way of people wanting to destroy themselves were useful to the FBI about how do you step in and stop someone from wanting to destroy someone else. And so that really got me to expand outside of my clinical field. And then when I discovered, uh, you'll you'll laugh at this, everybody's being held hostage by a a partner, by a wife, a husband, an ex-wife, you know, a, a customer who won't pay their bills, you know, someone, <laughs> yeah. who's, someone who's giving you a terrible Yelp review. I mean, it, it looks like, you know, everybody at any given time is feeling that. And so I found some uh, ability then to go out into the, uh, into the corporate world. And, uh, and I work mainly one-on-one with, uh, uh, with uh, CEOs, founders, and entrepreneurs uh, I recently became a Marshall Goldsmith MG100 coach, uh, something I've been doing, which may be of relevance to your audience. I've been doing presentations to accelerators, to startups about how do you pitch investors? Okay. Yeah. 
because you're because you're going to be held hostage by you need you need that next round of funding and no one's coming forward. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah really interesting. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, and you're also a, a prolific author. Uh, how many books have you written? So I've written or co-authored nine books. Uh, I actually uh, wrote two books during COVID, and I'm a little older in my life. I'm in my early 70s. And it was interesting because I, I had eight mentors. They've all died. The most recent one was Larry King. And before him was a big leadership guy named Warren Bennis. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. The, yeah. And one of the things Warren shared with me towards the end of his life, which really stuck with me, is he said, you know, when you get older and you're kind of a thought leader, you can feel irrelevant because younger generations, they may have heard of your name, but you're kind of irrelevant. And it was painful to him. And so at this stage of my life, for me, being relevant is helping people 60 and under land in their future. Because if I can help people land in their future, that keeps me relevant. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of like what what I like to do, and I but I like people who want to make a difference in the world as much as they want to make a dollar. So at, at this stage of my life, I need to, and I will only help people who have some higher purpose, even if they're at the early stages and they're saying, "Yeah, I've got a higher purpose, but I got to make a living." Yeah, that's interesting. I I retired from. Uh, I guess my full-time job, as you might call it, uh, three or four, three and a half years ago. And, and people said, are you afraid to retire? And, and I said, the only thing I'm really afraid of is how fast I'll become irrelevant. So I understand that feeling. So it's a, it's a, it's a good point. So tell us a couple of, now one of your books has, um, has really gotten huge accolades. Well, many of them have. So just tell us a, about a couple of them so that we're aware of uh, what, what you've written and, and how they're doing. Well, my first book was called Get Out of Your Own Way, and it's been an evergreen. There was no advertising, no book tour, and I'm only bringing it up because it was published in 1996, and it made the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list last week for nonfiction ebooks. Ah, congratulations. And, well, yeah, I mean, it really surprised me. People said, do you know that you're number 10 on the list? And I'm, I have a feeling it'll go off a cliff this week. Uh, and it was number one in a bunch of categories on Amazon, but it also coincided with an audio course, which I hope your listeners will check out. And if you go to Himalaya.com, so Himalaya Learning is an audio master class. Well, they can't use the word. Uh, it's it's an audio course company, and you know, and other courses they have from Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin, Barbara Cochran, and now me. And, awesome. And, and it's called, and the course is called Defeating Self Defeat. And if you go to Himalaya, it's, I can't spell it, but I think it's H I M A L A Y A dot com forward slash defeat. And the course is called Defeating Self Defeat. And it was inspired by the Get Out of Your Own Way book. And if your listeners put defeat in the promo code, they can listen to it for free. Oh, okay, great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. That's that's amazing, and you've uh, you've also looking at uh, some of your uh, accolades throughout your career. You you were also a guest on the Oprah Show. Now uh, that must have been pretty exciting. That that's big time. Uh, yeah, I was uh, on the Oprah Show. This will date me. I was on Donahue. I was, uh, and I I seem to get quoted all over the place. 
Um, something I, I, that really was kind of exciting is I, I five of my nine books are bestsellers in Russia. And, uh, and I want to give your listeners a one minute lesson in marketing. Okay. So there, so, so there is a term called mental real estate. A good friend of mine, Tony Baxter, he's retired, but he helped design Disney Paris and Disney Tokyo. And he told me about the term mental real estate. And he said, mental real estate is when you have a word that's familiar, people lean towards it because everybody is so overwhelmed and cluttered that when you hit them with things they don't, they don't recognize or has so much jargon, you know, it's unfamiliar. And so they tend to pull away. And so that's why Apple products are iPhone, iMac, i whatever. Uh, and and what Tony told me is uh, that Disney, an example of Disney using mental real estate, is he said Pirates of the Caribbean owns the word pirates in the minds of kids. So Disney owns pirates. And I share that because uh, uh, a couple of my books have incredible mental real estate. So, so here's a lesson. So one of my books, Just Listen, is okay, and, but it, is the, it became the top book on listening in the world to 28 languages. But I had a book after that called Talking to Crazy, and it's not about mental illness. It's about dealing with people that drive you crazy. And Talking to Crazy has some mental real estate because when I would say to people, yeah, I'm thinking of writing a book called Talking to Crazy, they would all smile. And I said, what are you smiling about? That's the familiarity. They said, I need that book today. Yeah, I know <laughs> yeah. people like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, yeah. that's decent mental real estate. But when I spoke a year and a half ago in Moscow with Daniel Kahneman, this guy's a Nobel Prize winner. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, great that's book. A that's great, a great book, yeah. Great new book out called Noise, and it's terrific. And I said to them in Moscow, I said, why do you have me headlining with a Nobel Prize winner? And they said, doctor, his book did not go viral. And I said, what do you mean? So my book, Talking to Crazy, which has a little mental real estate, I kid you not, the Russian edition is How to Talk to A-Holes, and it went viral. <laughs> gosh, okay. That's, a lot that's, of, yeah, a little that's bit lost in translation. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's that's amazing. Let's talk a little bit about um, if you know with your vast experience and and your your background. I'm just really interested in this. Let's talk about anxiety a little bit. It, it seems it is more and more common in our society today. Is that what you're seeing? And and if so, why do you why do you think that uh, so many people uh, have trouble with anxiety? Uh, I think one of the reasons people have so much trouble with anxiety and there's a little bias I have. It's not anti-technology. It's a warning about technology and artificial intelligence. Is uh, If you think about it, the giants in technology, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, none of them are very good with relationships. And some people will even say maybe they're a little bit on what's called the spectrum. And what happened is they got excited about technology. And they addicted the world, especially younger people, to excitement and adrenaline. 
And the problem with excitement and adrenaline is the crash office. So the only thing more powerful than an adrenaline rush, which you have to keep feeding with video games and extreme sports and the latest, you know, hottest fast car is the adrenaline crash. And what happens is when you're addicted to keeping the adrenaline high, it's rather brittle. And what's happened is that there's another uh, natural uh, hormone in our mind, in our physiology called oxytocin. And oxytocin is related to bonding. It's what allows a brand new mom to not scream at their screaming infant uh, because they feel this closeness. And I think, and what happens is that closeness helps lessen anxiety. And so I think what's happened is uh, that the younger generations, uh, this whole idea of oxytocin and empathy, it has really lost out to excitement. And excitement is great when it's exciting, but as I say, excitement is brittle. And, uh, and it's interesting because I've written two books during COVID with a wonderful author that I'm trying to launch into the world as a leader that the world needs. So during COVID, we wrote Why Cope When You Can Heal. And that came out in December. And then this just March, uh, a couple months ago, we wrote Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. And my co-author is Diana Handel, and she was the CEO of a hospital when on her 100th day as CEO, an employee of the month came in and killed his two supervisors and himself. And she led the hospital through that. And so she consults to organizations through trauma. Uh, because what she's taught me is it's not just individuals that go through trauma. Whole organizations go through trauma. Countries go through trauma. And, uh, and, 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 so, and so part of how we help people so the subtitle of Why Cope When You Can Heal is how healthcare heroes of COVID-19 can recover from PTSD, but it will help anyone who's been deeply traumatized. So it'll help veterans, it'll help first responders, uh, it'll help anyone who's been through severe trauma. But see if you can understand this, because we, we've all been somewhat traumatized by COVID, is what enables uh, someone who's active military or a healthcare worker who's just seen all kinds of trauma, death, bodies in storage units behind the hospital, what enables them to get through it all is they get an adrenaline rush and adrenaline insulates you from all those awful thoughts and feelings. An NBA player can play on a fractured leg if they have enough adrenaline pumping through them. But what happens, and this is what we're seeing after the pandemic, because what I'm hearing from businesses is, geez, you'd think people would be excited, but there's a whole load of people who are just listless. They're unproductive. And I liken it to, and you'll probably re remember this, Steve, but there were times when we went through final exams and we pulled a few all-nighters and we got through it and we collapsed. And, and yeah. what enabled us to get through it was the adrenaline rush and the fear and all that. 
So the adrenaline allowed us to get through it, but after exams, we crashed. So our whole country has been running on adrenaline to deal with the fear of COVID. And what's happened is as the danger goes away, the adrenaline insulation goes away. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that, that really makes a lot of sense because I think we are just now starting to see, well, of course, the, the frontline uh, responders and healthcare workers have been experiencing it a lot, but I think a lot of people are just now trying to figure out why they feel the way they do and what's going on, and, and I think you described it very well. It's a uh, yeah, the, the adrenaline's low, and, and um, it's, hard to get, it's hard to get going. It makes total sense. Yeah, and what we're doing to help healthcare workers, first responders, law enforcement, is, see, when you are traumatized like that, and there's a whole big problem of burnout in a lot of professions, and it's not just healthcare workers, law enforcement, uh, firefighters, teachers, and what we're trying to do is when you feel burned out, you tend to isolate. You don't want to be bothered by people. But what happens is if you can get connected to people and you start openly sharing and opening up, you actually start to feel better. And and But what will happen is, you know, there's a lot of people... Uh, I, uh, uh, I'm meeting a lot of people who say that they are members of the dread going but glad I went club. Wow. <laughs> which, yeah. Which, which means, oh, do I have to go to this? Oh, what a drag. And then when they go to something, and it could be an AA meeting, you know, and, uh, and they'll feel better. And they'll say, I got to remind myself that I actually feel better when I'm with other people and we're talking about things. And what we're doing, uh, this especially comes out in our book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, is uh, we describe the steps that people go through who are deeply traumatized. So if you can imagine you're a healthcare worker and you've just seen horrendous things and you need all the adrenaline you can to suppress them, what happens is, you know, instead of one person, a couple people dying, per month or so in your emergency room. You just have five on your last shift, including one of your colleagues. You're, you're, you're sweating in all this uh, PPE. You go outside, there's not enough room in the morgue. You're afraid to infect your family, so you go stay in the garage. And so when that happens, you feel a sense of horror. You then, when you get away from the hospital, you feel terrified because it, you're just reliving what you saw. And then you start to feel fragile because it's overtaking you, but you're duty bound. You know, you're, you're not going to bail because your fellow healthcare workers aren't going to bail or your fellow military. And what enables you to not bail and panic from feeling fragile is you get this adrenaline rush which allows you to push away your thoughts and push down your feelings. Push, push, push. And so you, you focus and you say to yourself, God, I must be superhuman. I didn't think I could make it through the next shift. And I've been up 72 hours and I'm not doing too bad, except down deep, you know something's happening. Yeah, yeah. And then you take it away. You take away the danger and all that adrenaline that enabled you to push everything away, 
makes you feel the metaphor we use is every time you push something away, it's like taking a screaming cat in your mind and locking it in a cellar. Then you lock another one, then five more, then 10, then 100. And so when the danger goes away, it feels like you can't just open that cellar door a crack. It feels like if you open it, they're all gonna come out and rip you apart. So our approach to helping people, that's why it's called Why Cope When You Can Heal, is we bring people together in groups. And when you give it names, it kind of tames it. And so they, and we say, uh, what was the trauma to your system? They share that. What were some of the most horrific moments? And they share those, and we teach them ways to breathe through it. You know, and was there a moment when you actually felt terrified? You know, what you saw you were dealing with, and so by doing that, and they're sharing it together, they're bonding, they're connecting. The oxytocin is flowing, and you'll know this because of uh, you know your background, or uh, you may not know it, but. Um, when we're under stress, our cortisol goes through the roof. And when our cortisol goes through the roof, it, it triggers something in our brain called an amygdala. And the amygdala hijacks us away from being able to think. And when the amygdala does that, it causes blood to be diverted to our lower brain to survive away from our upper thinking brain. That's called an amygdala hijack. And what counteracts high cortisol and amygdala uh, hijack is high oxytocin. Wow, th this is fascinating stuff. So, so help us understand, as a business leader, how do you deal with this kind of uh, things going on with your employees and the people that you're working with? Uh, I know you've had experience in this, so, so help us understand that. Yeah, after 9-11, I was called in by companies, organizations, uh, financial institutions brought together their high net worth clients. And they said, you know, this 9-11 is a real shock. Help us deal with it. And I'll, and I'll send you an article, which you can share the link with. And okay. the article was called Daring to Care. And what we did, and I did this in many places, is you assemble your people. And you say, I'd like you to share a time in your life that you didn't think you would get through, but you got through it. And it caused you to realize that you were stronger than you thought you were. And not only that, uh, think of a time where someone helped you to get through it. So I remember doing this with 150 CEOs in South Bend, Indiana, right near Notre Dame. And I am telling you, Steve, and these are CEOs, I would say within about 40 seconds, half the room is crying, but they're crying with gratitude because they're sharing times. And what's happening is they're sharing courageous vulnerability of times that they got through, which, which convinced them that they got through it before, they'll get through it again. And, and the combination of vulnerability, courage, and gratitude, because they talked about people who helped them, that's, that's the healing trifecta for anxiety, wow. is if you can get your people to share about that time. And, uh, and I'll just share one. I, Please I remember, do. Please uh, do. Yeah. Uh, 
I remember uh, one person, uh, uh, you know, one one. Th this was actually uh, something. Well, I'll tell you what the person was. There was one person who said that their last child was born and weighed something like under three pounds. And what would happen? And this was a tough, tough CEO and lawyer. And, and what would happen is he would go to the NIC ICU, the neonatal ICU, and this guy was really tough, but as he relived it, he said uh, he would reach in to the incubator and his infant child would grab on to his small finger and, and he got choked up and he said, and when my little girl held on to my finger for dear life, I knew if she could do it, I could do it. Mm, wow! And, and then, and then, and then, I, and then I said, "Does your daughter know how grateful you are?" <laughs> yeah. That what she taught you, because the way this works, so you you get your employees to share things, and and what will happen is, by the way, they will bond, because uh, I I did this with executive teams in Wall Street. And I remember uh, one of the executive teams uh, was at one of the larger banks, and they said, we're going through a rough period, and we need to pull together, especially after this 9-11. And, uh, uh, and I had people just share, share times earlier on in their life that they didn't think they'd get through, but they did. And, and why you want to pick a time where there was someone that helped you is the homework was for the CEOs, go do this in your company, but also contact the person you're grateful to or their next of kin if they've died, and you're going to give them a power thank you. And a power thank you has three parts. You're going to thank them for what they did. The second part is you're going to acknowledge the effort it took for them to do it. You went out a limb for me. You believed in me, and you didn't have to do that. And then the third part of a power thank you is you're going to tell them what it personally meant to you. And when you do this, by the way, um, you, uh, you're going to get emotional with gratitude. And I'll tell you something that we, we, I've instituted, and it's tough to keep up, but if you do this, uh, and I've done this at some conferences that I've spoken at, uh, uh, one of the things I will sometimes do, you know, depending on what the talk is, and it could be, you know, getting through anxiety of these times, I'll say at the beginning, I'll say, I want you to do something because we have an hour together and there's a method to my madness. I want you to take out your phones and you're going to send a video to someone you're grateful to. And you're going to send them a video and the video is going to have three parts. And you can say, I'm in this crazy workshop about anxiety and gratitude, and I was thinking about who I'm grateful to, and you came to mind, and this is what I'm grateful to you about. And you're going to give them that power, thank you. And you're going to send it to them. And, and what happens, Steve, is before the hour is up, I say, I want you to raise hand if any of you are getting responses. And, uh, and before my presentations up, people raising their hand, I'd say, what happened? Uh, I just got a response from this person and they said they watched my video four times and they can't stop crying. 
So, so can you picture this, Steve, how all these things can help lessen the anxiety? Yeah, I can. And I have a question, a practical question on that, because I, I have had my own clients sometime, you know, say, I know that someone's dealing with anxiety. I know that there's, you know, something going on, but they're almost afraid to take an approach like you just described because they said, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. So what if I unleash something or what if I create something that um, they don't know how to deal with and I don't know how to deal with? And there's a little bit of fear for that. So what would you recommend to, to leaders that, that feel they're in that situation? Well, so, so what I suggested is, is something you can do in your company. It's an exercise which will get them to bond with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, the key is picking up situations in the past that they got through. So you're giving them a breather from the current anxiety, but they're sharing moments that they got through in the past. So they got through them. And again, the sharing the vulnerability, the courage, and the gratitude, it's a trifecta. I mean, it's an amazing cocktail. And so that's something you might do with your organization as an exercise. In terms of clients, uh, a lot of times we're afraid, you know, we don't want to trigger anything. But something, I'll tell you something that I learned, and it was was kind of a poignant exercise. uh, my late father's boss, uh, there was, uh, uh, he was good to our family, my father's boss. And he had a son who was supposed to take uh, care of the, you know, was supposed to run the company. And it was a great son, but the son got cancer and died. And I'm reasonably articulate, and time was going by, and I didn't know what to say to the boss And because I wanted to say something comforting, I wanted to say something articulate. And time was passing. And then I uh, called him up and his name was Ray. And I said, Ray, uh, I've been putting this off. I just want to tell you how sorry I am. I mean, I didn't have anything articulate to say. And the point, it was the intention. So uh, I thought that I'm sorry is just so empty and hollow and so little but it was backed with, I guess, compassion. And and he said, you know, I'm so glad you called. You know, you're not supposed to outlive your son. You know, and he got emotional. He got choked up. I got choked up. So what am I saying? I think you can reach out to clients and say, I just heard such and such. And I just wanted to tell you I'm sorry. And I just wanted to check in, period. That's all you have to do. Yeah, so you don't have to worry so much about saying the perfect words or being eloquent or whatever. It's just that, that they know that you feel for them and that you have uh, some empathy for their situation, even if you don't exactly. know how to express it. Yeah. And you can even say, and, uh, and I, was just, I just heard about it, uh, and I'm so sorry uh, what you're going through. And I was just uh, thinking of you, and I just wanted to... Uh, no, no. Uh, just reach out to you and you don't, and don't feel obligated, you know, to respond because I know, you know, uh, this is not an easy period for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now in in one one of your books, I think you coined the term uh, surgical empathy. So uh, what does that mean? Is that kind of what we're talking about now or is that something different? Uh, 
It's a little bit. So in my book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, I, I introduced this term called surgical empathy. And surgical empathy is the approach I used with uh, uh, my suicidal patients for 25 years, and none of them killed themselves. And this will be interesting given your background, uh, physical therapy, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, so you're going to get this. So uh, if you if you haven't been suicidal, you might not get this. Uh, although, if you've had a kidney stone, you'll get this. Uh, if you've been suicidal, you've had a kidney stone before you get that morphine, and I've had a couple of kidney stones, death is compassionate to your pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, if you have continued hopelessness, which is what a lot of people who are suicidal for a while feel, death is is like the sirens beckoning to the sailors. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll take away your trials and tribulations. Just crash on the rocks. And so what death is saying is I'll make your pain go away. And so what happens is people in enormous pain, and I remember when I had a kidney stone, you know, before they hit me with the morphine, I said, just kill me, just shoot me, just shoot me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it was yeah. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and, and so what happens is people attach to things that sometimes are very dysfunctional in the moment. And surgical empathy is a way of causing them to not feel understood by you, but feel felt by you. See, if you're feeling hopeless, death feels your pain and says, I'll take it away for you. So can I share an instance of a, uh, a patient that I, uh, it was really a turning point for me where uh, it just changed the whole way I look at life. Absolutely, yes. So early on in my career, uh, after I finished training as a psychiatrist, one of my early mentors was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. He was a psychologist, and he was to suicide prevention what Warren Bennis was to leadership, you know, what Larry King, my last mentor, was to interviewing. And so, uh, so he would go up and do consultations, and he would see people who were still suicidal but they weren't acutely suicidal, so they had to be discharged. And in order to be discharged, there needed to be a psychiatrist or psychologist who would take them on as an outpatient. So Ed Schneidman would go do consultations. He'd meet with the person, call me on the phone, and then he'd put them on the phone. And then he would basically say, Mark, this is Ed. I'm with this handsome young man. I'm with this lovely young woman. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You could help them, see them. And then he'd refer them to me. And something that was my good fortune uh, in my training is at the end of my training, I was supposed to go into a fellowship and it fell through. And so I said, well, I shrugged my shoulders. Let me see if I can go out there, see if anyone will come see me. But what that enabled me to do, since I wasn't working for an institution, is even though I followed a protocol, um, something I picked up with suicidal patients was that I'd look in their eyes 
And their eyes were looking at me with a, and it's as if they were saying, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. Mm -hmm. And so I had a choice, check boxes or go where their eyes took me. And so, you know, that was something I was sort of learning. And then I got like a, a, a huge jolt of what this was with a patient we'll call Nancy. So Nancy had made three or four attempts before I started seeing her. She'd been in the hospital, I don't know, a month or two every year for three or four years. And I didn't think I was helping her at all, except I was seeing her for six months and that was the longest she'd gone without a uh, suicide attempt or hospitalization. And once a month I would moonlight at hospitals, which mean I would cover for other psychiatrists and I'd do admissions and I'd go, do medications, and I'd go out and you know, you know, intervene with patients who were acting up in the inpatient units. But sometimes I'd be up for 24 hours, and when you're up for 24 hours or longer, you know, your mind kind of disconnects. And so I'd come in on a Monday after I'd been up, and there was Nancy, and she never looked at me. And as I'm seated with her, uh, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out at this room, it's black and white, and I get these chills, and I thought I'm having a stroke or a seizure. Now, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, so I did a neurologic exam on myself, and everything was there. I was tapping my knees, my elbows. She wasn't looking at me because she didn't make eye contact. And I said, I'm not having a stroke or seizure, and I had this crazy idea, Steve, that I was looking at the world and feeling what she felt black and white and cold. And because I was sleep deprived, I said to her, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I will miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to. And I thought, ah, oh, I just gave her permission. I'm really in trouble here. And that was really the first time she looked at me and she and she, she grabbed onto my eyes with her eyes. And I said, what are you thinking? Because I thought she was going to say, thank you for letting me do it. I'm overdue. And she grabbed onto my eyes with her eyes. And she said, if you can really understand why I might, uh, why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled and, and then I held onto her eyes and I said, here's what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna give you treatments or medications unless, unless you want me to, because you've been through all these things and, and I don't wanna create something where we're chasing our tails, where I try something, you come back, you tell me about the side effects and you try something else. So I'm not going to do that unless you ask me to. Is that okay? And we're still holding each other's eyes. And, and she looked at me with a look that said, keep talking. And then I reached onto her eyes and I held them with my eyes. And I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And when I get there, I'm going to keep you company as long as it takes. Yeah. Wow. Because I because I don't want you to be alone in hell anymore. Will that be okay? And she started to tear up. And so that, that was one of my first introductions to 
learning to be able to look at the world through other people's eyes. Wow. And I want to give, and I, by the way, I want to give uh, you know, business leaders and uh, physical therapists uh, my latest thinking on this, because when I went to Russia a year and a half ago, and I, uh, I headlined with the, this fellow Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, I introduced to a thousand Russian businessmen and managers and leaders, this is my latest concept and I'm trying to teach it to the world. What I said to them is, if I focus on what you're listening to right now, you're listening to me. And if I give you a bunch of bullet points, you write them down, You'll try them. Most of them won't work. And you'll say, uh, it'll work for him. He's an expert. If I'm entertaining, you'll give me your mind for an hour. And we'll have a nice transactional conversation. And then I said to them, and I switched the tone of my voice to more, to more NPR. And I said, but if instead of focusing on what you're listening to and you give me your mind for an hour, I focus on what you're listening for and I get it right and I deliver on what you're listening for without you telling me, you'll give me everything. And then I told them, uh, well, let's, well, let's translate to this phys your physical therapist because, and this is a way to really connect with your clients. And so they're coming in and you know, you're doing your history and whatever. And, but there might be a point in which you can say, uh, while you're listening to them, you pause and you say, you know, I just had a thought about what you came in here for and what you're listening and looking for. And can I tell you what it might be? And they're gonna say, yeah. Say, um, you're listening and looking for hope that these pains that you have can get better. And you know our profession has all kinds of different approaches and we're all a little bit creative. And I think you're listening and looking for an approach that's a great fit for you. And, and I think what you're looking for and listening for is something that can work sooner than later because this pain is killing you. It's making you ornery. Is any of that true? Can you see, Steve, how they would say, wow. He really understands me. He, he, he really yeah. understands me. Yeah. And you're also listening and looking for something that won't be overly complicated. What you're hoping for, and I hope we can come up, is we don't really have magic bullets, but, you know, if I give you 10 different exercises to do three times a day, you know, there's a part of you that's gonna smile politely and you're gonna take back the sheets that I give you with all the printed up exercises. But, but you're gonna be thinking, I don't know if I can do all of this. Yeah. So what, you, what you're looking and listening for is something that's doable by me that I can do consistently. And if I start to get relief, Maybe I'll get motivated to do all the other stuff. Uh, so can, can you can you see how they'd say, "Wow, 
wow, how'd you know that? Yeah, yeah. It's just getting that connection with that person. That's, yeah. So let's switch gears here a little bit and bring it back to the business world. Uh, you know, you brought up some of those iconic uh, tech uh, billionaire entrepreneurs that we were talking about earlier. So let's take on a Elon Musk. Um, you know, we we can see that the 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 creative things he does and whatever, but but how does he look at the world and how does he look at it differently than than your average person would? Okay, so I'm going to give you a few hacks because I've given presentations on how to think like Elon Musk, and I did actually a one-man show uh, called Steve Jobs Returns where I played Steve Jobs with a turtleneck and the glasses, and I played him from uh, 1996 to 2007. And, uh, and it was fun, Steve, because I was in character, and and my inner a-hole got to come out. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell you, it felt good. Yeah. And, but, but this is how I, I believe they look at the world. And, and it's unconscious. They just do it naturally. So here's the first uh, hack. It's what I call the three Ds of visionary thinking. And if you look up the three Ds of visionary, I think, leadership, I write for, I'm a founding member of the Newsweek uh, Expert Forum, and that was an article. And what the three Ds are is they define reality, they declare their intention to make it so, and then they decide on a strategy to make it happen. So what does defined reality mean? Uh, a friend of mine is a fellow named Bill Ryan. Bill Ryan was really someone who helped with the branding and the launching of Yahoo when it was a big company. He also helped Steve Jobs before he left Apple and after he came back from Apple. And one of the things that he said that was a genius about Steve Jobs is he solved problems that people didn't know they had. So for instance, early Steve Jobs said, I'm a geek, kind of, not as geeky as Wozniak, but uh, all this tech and computers that other people don't even know about, it's the future. And if we could make it small and portable and fun and actually make it pretty, we're gonna own the world. So a lot of people didn't know that they had this problem that they needed technology to actually connect with the future. Uh, Elon Musk, I heard the story about the, how he got the idea for Tesla some years back. Uh, some, some years back, someone said to him, uh, hey, check out my laptop. It's got these lithium batteries. And together, I forget who the person was, they said, I'll bet we could find a way to put this in a car and let's not come up with some little crummy little, uh, you know, vehicle that, you know, looks like a, a pet, you know, a, a, a pepped up motorcycle. Let's make a luxury car. And then the Tesla S came out. Uh, they first did, of course, the one that looked like a Lotus, but the Tesla S was that. And so, so defining reality uh, is what is a problem that your market doesn't even know they have? 
Now, you don't have to do that. The problem is if you come up with a problem they know they have, everybody's going to chase after that, and you're going to be a commodity, and you're going to get squeezed on price. So I'm not saying don't go after the problems they have, but there's going to be a lot of competition. And then, uh, and see, Steve Jobs was able to see it so clearly that one of the ways he declared his intention was this thing where he had this reality distortion field where people said, oh, he could just hypnotize you. But what it was is he saw the future that you couldn't see so clearly that when he declared his intention to make it so, he pulled you aboard. And then he had to figure out strategy and he had too much ego initially. And so that's when you know, Apple fired him. Right. Yeah. But, but they but they tried to replace a visionary with a series of strategists and almost killed the company. And meanwhile, Steve Jobs was cooling his heel. He got a little humbler, you know, and then he and then he got, found his way into Pixar, you know, and the rest is history. So those are the three Ds. Now here's something else that was the cornerstone of my presentation of Steve Jobs or how to think like Elon Musk. And if you're listening to this, I'm guessing a third of you, if you're driving, you're going to write it down because almost everybody writes it down. And that's the formula for how do you create got to have it, got to buy it, got to work there, got to invest there. Because if you can create got to, you don't have to sell. You just take sales orders. Apple doesn't have to sell. You just go there and, and they, they try to find out what you want. Same thing with Tesla. And what goes into gotta have it is woe, wow, hmm, yes. <laughs> and woe, W-H-O-A, you have to get into people's cluttered minds. And woe is I can't believe what I just saw, heard, or read. And in the case of Nancy, the suicidal patient, she couldn't believe what she just felt, which was hope. And and you know you created, you know you created woe if you're giving a presentation to an audience because people are texting, they're distracted, they elbow the person next to them. What did he say? What did she say? Or if you're there networking and someone's looking over your shoulder for something better than you, and you say something that's a woe, they go, What what'd you say? Say that again. And then the wow is, that's astonishing, amazing, unbelievable. So the wow grabs your attention. The wow delivers on it. And when I played Steve Jobs, I show a video. And if you're listening, do a search for National Geographic Xerox Park Steve Jobs. And it'll take you to a dramatization of Steve Jobs discovering the graphical user interface and the mouse of Xerox Park. And in two minutes, you will see the woe. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. The wow, this is astonishing. The hmm, is this is too good to ignore. And in that video, he looks at Wozniak and Wozniak says, this is, once we go there, we're not going back. So the hmm, is this is too good to ignore. And then the yes, when you see how to use it, it's sold. So when I consult the companies and practices, I say, uh, let's look at all your marketing. 
because of course the difference between marketing and selling and people confuse them is marketing is what you do to be in the position to make a sale. So marketing gets them interested enough so that you can make a sale and your marketing has to create whoa, wow, hmm, yes. Because if it doesn't create whoa, wow, hmm, yes, what you're creating is, nah, no thanks, never mind, goodbye. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And, and you can bring me in, you know, or my team, but the point is, try it on your own, because uh, you know, I'm getting old in years, and I don't want to travel too much. I guess I can do this on Zoom. But do, go to your marketing team and say, whenever our customers or clients go to our website, I mean, do they go, whoa, well, yes? And, the, and your marketing team's going to look at you like a deer in the headlights. And you say, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Don't get nervous. And then you ask them to talk about times in their life when they went, whoa, well, yes. It's like going back to the thing years ago at the beginning of this podcast <laughs> yeah. where, we talked about, where we talked about people talking about times they got through. Yeah. So it's a similar thing. You know, get your marketing people. Actually, bring your whole team together because you want to get them all excited. We're going to do a meeting, and we're all going to share moments in our lives where we went, whoa, whoa, well, yes, it could be about anything, a new car, you know, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new product, who cares? But you're going to, but you're going to get the wiring in their brain to know that that's what they need to create. Well, yeah, my brain's going crazy right now because I feel like uh, we could have this discussion for hours and hours and hours, but we are, you know, getting close to where we might need to wrap this up a little bit. But uh, with your experience and all that you've seen and done and and worked with, um, let me ask you this loaded question. What do you think the secret to peace of mind and happiness is? Well, you're going to have to extend this one a little bit, Steve. Uh, (laughs) Because I'm going to give you something that I think is better than what we've already talked about, and, and it hasn't been bad so far. I used to give a talk, and I would say, if I could give you the secret to happiness, peace of mind, and maybe success, and it's one word, if you agreed with it, would you commit to try it? And if you don't agree with it, you don't have to. So picture that the audience is looking at me. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah. And so I take out a little piece of paper, and I write down a word, and I give it to the person in the front row to my left, and I say, read the word, and if you can accept it, you know, pass it to the, well, pass it to the person next to you or discard it. And I'm telling you, Steve, they felt like dominoes. So picture this. They open the piece of paper. They look at it. They take a deep breath and they go, oh, which is a yes. And they pass it to the person next to them. And what's the word? Forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. And here's the secret, because I collect quotes. And I've had some really great quotes. I have three great quotes. They could be another episode. But there's one quote that knocked all of them totally off the table. And there's a friend of mine named Dr. Shawnee Duperon, and she has an organization called Project Forgive, and she gave me the quote. And it's this, forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. 
Yeah, yeah, wow. Told you. Yeah. And I'll tell you, and I'll just share something, you know, because some of you may apply it in the same thing. Um, uh, my dad died 1995, and, you know, and, you know, and, and he was hardworking, and he was a workaholic, and he was worried, and he was stressed. Uh, but, you know, and sometimes uh, uh, he would say things like, um, uh, what do you, if we want something, he'd say, what do you need it for? You know, which kind of felt dismissive. And, and so I applied this to my father. And he's been gone for 26 years. And this is the apology that I accepted that I never received. What he said to me is, and I'm sure this is true wherever he is, he said, you know, remember when I used to tell you, what do you need it for? I was always worried about supporting the family. And I had a fair amount of pride. And I wanted to feel that I was as good a dad as the dad next door. And I wanted to believe that I got all of you, whatever you needed. And, um, you know, roof over your head and, you know, you were able to you know, stay in a house and take care of things. And, uh, and I wanted to believe that, you know, when you wanted something, I, I kind of talk you out of it because I didn't know if we could afford it, but I, I wish I wasn't worried about money because I would have loved to give you and your brothers not only what you needed, but what you wanted, and I'm sorry. And when I heard him say that to me, I got emotional and I said, I said to him, I said, I'm sorry I held it against you. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Wow. Well, you know, at this time in the interview, uh, Mark, I always ask the same common question to my guests. And that question is in relation to leadership, what can you leave us with today as a pearl of wisdom? Um, I have something called the Dead Mentors Society. So I've had eight mentors. They've all died. Uh, starting all the way back to someone in medical school, to uh, Dr. Schneidman, uh, all the way up to Warren Bennis, to Larry King. And uh, I consult my dead mentors uh, when I'm scared, frustrated, or down on myself. So I do a lot of uh, guest interviews, and I'd be critical of myself. And so recently I did one, and I, I hope I don't have to do it with this interview, but recently I did one, and I called up Larry King, and he has a rough Brooklyn voice, and he says, Mark, I'm not even cold yet. What are you waking me for? <laughs> I said, Larry, I did it again. What'd you do, Mark? Oh, I start these stories on these podcasts. I don't know where they're going. You know, sometimes I don't finish them. I'll say, here are the five things you need to remember, and then I only remember three. And he says, Mark, what'd the host think? Well, they said they want me to come back. <laughs> yeah, so. And then Larry says, Mark, Mark, 
Let me go back to RIP, okay? Put a sock in it already, will you? What, 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 what I'm saying is if you can, if you're down on yourself, and I'll tell you there's a physiology to this because when I'm down on myself and I'm stressed out and my cortisol is pumping, when I can remember any of those mentors who believed in me uh, when I didn't, who I think loved me, and I can feel that as I say it, feeling grateful, feeling appreciative and missing them, I get this surge of oxytocin. I just felt it when I told you the story. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the oxytocin calms my cortisol down, and I can start to think clearly. So if you can call upon people living or dead, and I happen to like them when they're dead because they're much more portable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's great advice. You know, it's interesting. We we just all need that. And, and to, uh, taking this full circle, I heard Oprah on a, a show just in the last week say that Every person she has ever interviewed from the very start to today, everyone, no matter how big and famous and confident and successful they are, as soon as the, the interview is done, they always ask the same thing, which is, how'd I do? Because people want to know. They, they want to feel like, you know, that, that, that they get that, that gratification or they, they, they you know, we all, we all need that. We all get that. So thanks. Thanks for sharing, sharing that. Yeah, but you just, you just, so can we say it on the air? Steve, how did I do? <laughs> you did great. I was mesmerized, that's for sure. So I think you did great, and I think our audience okay. is going to love it. So, Mark, this has been uh, uh, just a pleasure. I, I really do feel like we could go on and on and on. There's so many things that we could uh, we could do. And, and, yeah, I'm leaning towards, hey, let's have you on again sometime. So there, there's, there's, your, uh, there's your validation right there. So thanks for taking the time on a Friday afternoon to do this, and, and I really appreciate it. And um, enjoy your weekend coming up, and uh, continued good luck. And, and I really appreciate all the, all the work you do for people and, and seeing things from a different side of things and helping those in need. So thank you, Mark. I appreciate well, you very much. Well, Thank you, and I hope I hope uh, if you try out the Himalaya thing, you know, you'll give me some feedback. I hope you like it, and, okay. and I hope people listening and we'll give it a try. But thanks for having me on. We'll do. Take care, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles and Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles and Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles and Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.